0: I lost 3,000 followers in the big Twitter purge. Purge and purify. Purge and purify. Just remember all the good the purge does. Blessed be our new founding fathers. What's that all about anyway, the Twitter purge? What the heck is a bot? It all goes back to my most sacred motto, which is, the less Twitter, the better. Ray Lewis lost 50% of his followers, but at least nobody got killed. Rick McHenry lost 40% of her followers, but that's not so bad because she's lost 100% of her career. This is the Mark Man Show. Bucks win, Bucks win, Raise the Jolly Rancher. The number to call is 412-333-WXDX or follow me on Twitter at MarkMadX. The Pirates are going to have a purge of their own. And after the talk was expanded to wonder, well, should they trade Polanco and Marte? It's now been further expanded to include perhaps trading Tyon and Vazquez. I wouldn't do that, but I wouldn't count that out either. Because if you stink, you might as well do a total purge and then a total rebuild. But the problem is, the Pirates don't know how to make that trade. For example, they got crap for Garrett Cole. They got an okay pitcher and an okay third baseman, Musgrove and Moran. But you need to get a top prospect for Cole. He was a number one pick overall, and he's 27. In his prime. So it's easy to say the Pirates should trade Vasquez, for example, but what would they get? The Yankees got huge returns for a couple relief pitchers in 2016, Miller and Chapman, but the Pirates have rarely shown much acumen in making that kind of a deal. Now, is that because the GM, Neil Huntington, is that because he's not good at making deals? Or is it because return doesn't matter nearly as much as saving money? It's difficult to talk about the Pirates as a competitive entity because profit and not competing is always, always the number one priority. Uh, Bucko fans on the various talk shows seem to not want to trade Tyon, but hey, he's 26. You traded Cole when he was 27. That said, Tyon has one more year of team control, followed by three years of arbitration, whereas Cole had two years of arbitration remaining. Tyon pitched pretty well last night. One run allowed in six innings to go with 10 Ks. Apparently, he threw a lot more curveballs, and that was a Tyon decision, and not a hurdle decision, or a searage decision, or a bucko decision. Let's be honest. Baseball is more of an individual game. It's a series of individual moments connected to make a team result. If I were a pitcher, I'd do what I thought was best if I was uncomfortable with what the pitching coach and organization said was best, especially on a team with a goofy system-wide philosophy like everybody pitch to contact. Hurdle said Cervelli might start playing some first base. Yeah, for somebody else in a couple weeks. Hey, play Cervelli at first and bench Bell. Bench all the young guys. Send Meadows down to AAA. You might as well. Meadows has only started once in the past seven games, and I just can't see a good reason for that. Hurdle has become a real stumble bum. Your thoughts on what the Pirates should do at the trade deadline. We talked about Polanco and Marte the other day. Should they consider trading Tyon and Vasquez? Tyon, I'd say no. Vasquez, a closer. Closers are generally a dime a dozen, and they fade fast. So if you got the right offer like the Yankees did for Miller and Chapman from the Indians and Cubs, respectively, a couple years back in 2016, yeah, go ahead and do that. But I just don't see Neil Huntington coaxing that kind of offer out of whoever might want to trade for Vazcats. Baseball geeks are making a big deal because Mookie Betts of the Boston Red Sox hit a 13-pitch grand slam last night. Foul ball, foul ball, foul ball, foul ball ad nauseum, and then boom, grand slam. Hey, great, terrific, because it had a happy ending. But how many long at-bats end in and outs? And we've been bored to death in the meantime. Baseball geeks think everybody appreciates the geeky stuff. We do not, geeks. We most assuredly do not. Uh, Wiz Khalifa has a new album out. I feel high just talking about it, and I'm sure it is dope, as the kids say. Seriously, Wiz ain't my cup of tea, but he is absolutely brilliant. We got a bunch of great guests today. We got Ian Asbury. He's the singer for The Cult. They are at Key Bank Pavilion on July 21st. That's a Saturday, along with Bush and the revamped Stone Temple Pilots. Uh, what a great band The Cult is. Can't wait to. Well, actually, I'll be out of time, but I've seen The Cult a ton. One thing about interviewing Asbury. He's an Everton fan. That's the other team in Liverpool. So I really don't know how we're going to get along, but that's Ian Asbury of the cult at 3.30. At 4.30, we got Jeff Hardy. Brother Nero! Brother Nero! Uh, he's in town for WWE's Extreme Rules Show. That's at PPG Paints Arena on Sunday. It's Jeff Hardy against Shinsuke Nakamura for Hardy's U.S. title. Uh, That match should steal the show. Two great performers in that one. And then at 5.30 live in studio, we got Mark Pulisic. He's the assistant coach for the Pittsburgh Riverhounds and the father of Christian Pulisic, who is America's best soccer player at the age of 19. Christian is in town July 25th for the International Champions Cup soccer match between his team, Borussia Dortmund of Germany, and Benfica of Portugal. If you're a soccer buff, you certainly don't want to miss the interview today at 5.30 with Mark Pulisic and the game between Russia and Benfica on the 25th. Uh, The World Cup final is Sunday between Croatia and France. I'm picking France. Tomorrow is the third-place game between England and Belgium. And if there's a dumber concept than a third-place game at the World Cup, I certainly have not heard about it. Oh, we've got some Penguin talk coming up next segment. Alexiak signed a new deal. and ex-Penguin signed a new deal with his new team. That's interesting. We'll get to that. And Jim Rutherford talked about the logjam at center, which could become a logjam at wing. We'll get to all that Penguin talk just around the corner. Uh, D'Angelo Williams, the former Steeler running back, he was on Impact Wrestling last night. And uh, their world champ, when I say world champ, I mean as big a world champ as you can be when your weekly program airs on Pop TV, whatever the frig that is, Austin Aries beat D'Angelo Williams silly with a chair. And before he did that, Aries cut a stiff promo on D'Angelo. Harry said to D'Angelo Williams, why aren't you at NFL training camp? Oh, that's right. Nobody wants you. Well, at least you won a Super Bowl. Oh, that's right. You never did. And then kabong with the chair, definitely adding injury to insult. I will say if D'Angelo wants to get back into wrestling, he did that one match like a year ago with Impact. It's the best first match I've ever seen anybody have in pro wrestling. It was absolutely brilliant. Anywho, we got a lot of time to fill and not much pertinent to fill it with. See, the show's all over the place today, but isn't that good? Ian Asbury, Jeff Hardy, Mark Pulisic, you couldn't have three more diverse all over the place guests than those three. I mean, if you just had one, Among all the cliched sports types, that would be all over the place. But today's show is all over the place, and I mean that in the best possible way because that stuff I talked about to open up, should they trade Vasquez? Now, I will talk about that if you want to. I think that is a debatable topic. You know, how far they go with the fire sale. You know, what players should be left standing? I'd listen to an offer for just about anybody, but... If you listen to other sports talk shows today, like the B Team, and this is no knock on them, we work with what we got to work with. But all day long, I heard, "Should they trade Vasquez? Should they trade Vasquez? Should they trade Vasquez? Should they trade Vasquez?" And I'm hoping they do trade Vasquez, just so we ha- can stop talking about the possibility of trading Vasquez. Should they trade Vasquez? Should they trade Vasquez? Should they trade Vasquez? Enough with the trade Vazquez already! 1059 the X. And now the super genius, Mark Madden. Are you speaking from the inside of an electric razor? Yeah. Luke, I am your father. The X at 1059. We got Ian Asprey of the Cult. Cult had a has had quite a career. I remember it was like 87-ish, 88-ish. At one point, Guns N' Roses was opened up for the cult, and then the cult was opened up for Guns N' Roses. They did the switcheroo after one tour was over. They just turned it right around, and the cult went on first. But uh, the cult had those two great albums in the 80s, Love and Electric. And they did great work after that, too. But as I'm going to talk about with Ian Asbury, Love was this very, it was heavy, it was very melodic and very silky in sound. And then the very next album, After Love, was a big success. What was the hit off Love? She Sells Sanctuary, which is very hard to say. Then Electric came out two years later in 87, and it was just raw and crunching. Uh, It was produced by Rick Rubin, and uh, that's what he wanted, raw and crunching. And the single off that was uh, Love Removal Machine. Guess what that's about? And... uh, I'm not going to ask Ian about this, but uh, Love Removal Machine kind of ripped off the stone Start Me Up. Same riff, but it's still real good. And anyway, everything's stolen from something. Every every chord's used in every song, all three of them. That's one of my favorite uh, onstage things that uh, gets said uh, is by Billy Gibbons' easy Top. He always says, same three chords, same three guys. Anyway, Ian Asbury at the bottom of the hour. Uh, here's some Penguins talk. Uh, Jim Rutherford, the Penguins general manager, he said point blank that Derek Brassard is going to get a look at playing at a top six wing spot at camp. Okay, that would likely mean he'd play left wing on the Malkin line. And then where do the chips fall from there? There are going to be some unhappy campers at the wing position For the Penguins. And let's say using Broussard at wing means Cullen is a regular at center. But Rust is on the fourth line and Sprong is a scratch. Because that could very easily be the trickle down. Would that be the best use of all concerned? And Broussard hasn't played that much wing in his career. Lines are not easy to put together for the Penguins. They should be. They are not. Uh, I'm so curious to see who the right wing is going to be on Sid's line. If he wants Simone and F's up all the other lines, because that's basically, well, he wouldn't F up the Malkin line. Malkin and Phil, I'm thinking that's what Sullivan will start with. But boy, he loves Kessel on that third line. Then again, you just can't do Kessel on the third line if Broussard's playing top six wing. You just can't. The best fit for Broussard, just for Broussard, would be at wing on Sid's line. I think he'd match up really well the way he plays both through the neutral zone and down low at a high level. He'd match up well with Sid. But Gensel's the left wing, unless he's not. I mean, a lot of stuff is going to happen during training camp in the early part of the season. Uh, Jamie Alexiak, the defenseman, signed a three-year deal. The Penguins now have very little cap space left, but they don't need any. Uh this now what they got, this is the team for the start of the season anyway. And I think recall that finish kid is the number eight defenseman. The Penguins seem to have a lot of faith in him. Uh by the way, uh Mark Andre Fleury signed a three year extension today with Las Vegas. He will now be a Golden Knight through twenty twenty two. His extension will pay him uh seven million dollars per year you know even before flurry went to vegas i looked at that situation not knowing of course how good the golden knights were going to be in their premier season but uh i knew that would be a good fit for him i knew no pressure a regular die to games and then it turned out the team was good look how far mark andre took them so i'm overjoyed for mark that he has found more success in Las Vegas, and now we'll stay there through 2021. 412 333 9939 is the number to call. Uh, Stormy Daniels got arrested in Columbus because she touched customers while performing at a strip club. Now, she wasn't, you know, reaching down their pants, although that, that happens, just not where cops can see it. Not with her, I'm not implying. Then again, I don't, well, never with, I mean, let me backtrack. All Stormy did was put their faces between her boobs. That's not real classy, but this is the business she's chosen, and the men liked it. Uh, This is just Trump's America trying to get even. That's what her arrest is all about. The president nailed her and paid to cover it up, And he's still the president. Stormy gave Trump a lot more than she gave those jamokes in Columbus. And she's the one who got arrested. Now, Stormy got arrested on Wednesday, but all charges were immediately dismissed. And she was right back on stage Thursday night, albeit at a different strip club in Columbus, because the one she got arrested at was understandably a bit nervous. But hey, arrested Wednesday, back naked on stage Thursday, there is one word to describe that, and that word is professional. Stormy Daniels is a professional. 412 333 A tweet from Corey Geiger, who writes for the Altoona paper. And this is talking about the Pirates' inability to trade assets for prospects. When the Pirates traded Charlie Morton, and don't forget he won game seven of the World Series for the Astros, and he's in this year's All Star Game. They go to minor league righty, David Whitehead, in twenty sixteen with Altoona. He was two and six ERA of seven point eight three. Went to Bristol three and two, seven point one three ERA, and he has not pitched since. That's the kind of trade the Pirates make when they're trading now for later. Four one two three 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 ninety nine thirty nine. Up next, Da-na-na. from the count it's Ian Asbury, one zero five nine the X. And now the super genius Mark Madden. Yeah, hi Mark. Hi. Where I love your show? I just talked to David Lee Roth. He said, "Somebody get me a doctor." The X at one zero five nine. My guest right now will be headlining at Key Bank Pavilion on Saturday, the 21st of July. His band has been a major force in rock music since being founded in 1983, and they are still together and going strong. From the cult, it's lead singer Ian Asbury. Uh, Ian, thanks so much for taking the time. When you put the cult together in 1983, could you envision that you'd still be together and headlining in 2018? That's really amazing. Thank you. Um, no, I had no idea that it was
1: going to go beyond. I think the big thing at the time was uh, just making a single, you know, just getting a just making a single or an EP was the, was the goal. I never thought we'd get into like 10 studio albums and multiple tours and, you know, several decades. Um, but here we are.
0: Well, it's always been you and Billy Duffy on guitar, the nucleus, the, the songwriters. How has that partnership yeah. held up over thirty-five years?
1: <clears throat> we've definitely been through a lot. Um, I mean, right now we're in really good shape. Um, it's a good relationship. Uh, there's a lot of harmony, and uh, we've had some. We've recently been playing out. We've, we've had some great shows. We just came back from Europe. We played um, outside of London. We played in Valencia in Spain last weekend. Uh, we had a couple of great shows. So, um, you know, it continues
0: what's the creative process like for you and Billy because the cults never really followed a formula I don't think it's it's not a predictable no. band
1: no there's no real formula I think that's just down to the personalities involved I mean I'm constantly reevaluating you know it's like when you go through a studio process there's always things that you want to change even when the record comes out it's like we should go in and I love that you know some artists now are actually uh, getting response and feedback, and listening to the music once it comes out, and then going away and changing it, and then putting out a new version of the album, which is a really, I think, it's a really cool thing to do. Um, you know, you keep updating the work. But uh, the process is, I guess, it's whatever it demands. You know, sometimes we've made records in six weeks, sometimes we've made records in six months. Um, some albums we've done straight from demos. Some albums we've done with no songs, walking in the studio. Uh, the last couple of records we've done have been pretty much. Uh, Billy and I will go away and work, see what we've got, you know, and then we come together collectively, put it on the pool, and then we decide which songs we're going to work on. Um, so we both work at home, and then we work in the studio environment. So I guess there's a little bit of consistency in the last couple of records, especially with Bob Rock being involved and in, from the beginning.
0: Now, Love was the Cult's breakthrough LP in 1985, yeah. and then Electric was quite different in '87, but also a big success a bit heavier what inspired that that was a that was a gutsy progression there
1: i think it was really about the lifestyle we're a touring band we're a live touring band um we wanted music that was that was immediately impactful and um you know love album is very textured very layered and quite labored in places um well that's a very simple record um But I think for electric, we're kind of getting back into this territory of very textured, you know, initially we started off and we're laying down a lot of textures and just felt like we should be stripping it away and getting more to the core of the sound. So that was one of the, you know, definitely the observations from Rick Rubin, um, to strip it away down to its, you know, most basic form. And we were completely caught up in that. And, uh, you know, there it stands. I don't think it's anything we could ever duplicate.
0: Now, the last new music the cult did was in 2016. Uh, Ian, is more new music likely, and what are the pros and cons of doing new music in today's era?
1: Well, definitely. I mean, we're creative first, so there's always going to be something floating around. Um, It's more about, like, coming together with the right circumstances. Uh, I mean, we've been really focused on touring for the past couple of years, um, touring out hidden city and you know meeting those commitments and and now we're kind of evolving back into a place where we're looking at potentially you know new material new releases so those conversations have started um i think it's really important to stay you know uh, current stay relevant with your body of work um you know definitely not contrive anything but just really For me, it's always been just a natural process. It's not something I have to struggle with um, creating. So I just feel that when we feel we've got something to say, then we'll go in the studio and put it down.
0: We're talking to Ian Asbury, singer for The Cult, The Cult at Key Bank Pavilion, on Saturday, July 21st. Uh, Ian, a lot of your early songs were about Native American themes. Uh, What inspired that?
1: Um, Yeah, definitely. was a lot of American-Indian um, references and symbolism. Um, <clears throat> growing up in Canada, I immigrated to Canada when I was 11. I was exposed to um, the indigenous culture. I lived next to a reservation, Six Nations Reserve, um, outside of Hamilton, Ontario. It was in Br- Brampton, I believe. <clears throat> so, you know, it was the first time I've really exposed to uh, another culture outside of like a Northwestern European culture and uh, I just became absolutely fascinated with their relationship with nature, and existential spirituality, and um, that was part of their everyday uh, consciousness, which is very different from what I grew up with, so I became fascinated by that, and um, just explored some of the themes, and then it found its way into lyrics, and songs, and um, titles, and uh, (laughs) it was definitely an appreciation of the culture. Um, a complete reverence and appreciation for for Native culture.
0: Now, you toured with Robbie Krieger and Ray Manzarek of The Doors for a number of years at the turn of the millennium. How do you look back at that experience? I was at uh, a couple of those shows, and boy, that's a tough act to follow with Jim Morrison, but the shows were quite good.
1: Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a 12-year courtship. That didn't happen overnight. <laughs> no, that, that took 12 years. I was like initially meeting Danny Sugarman, the manager at the time, and Oliver Stone, uh, when they were putting together the Doors movie, and that was an initial conversation about participating in that. But what really led to was being introduced to Robbie and Ray, and even John at the time. <clears throat> and um, they were, you know, flirting with the idea of reforming, but at that point, that would have been only, you know, what, like 18 years, 17 years since Morrison had passed on. So I think it was still kind of fresh for them. And... uh they ended up waiting till the early 2000s before they felt you know, they, felt they were in a place where they really wanted to go out and perform these songs. It was a whole new generation that never experienced their music live. In fact, the Doors didn't really tour that much, <clears throat> which is a little-known fact. I mean, they didn't tour as much as of the Other bands. They did six shows in Europe. That was their European tour with six shows. That was it. Um, so they never went around the world. They played Mexico City, um, I believe, and they played... Um, I think they played Tijuana as well, but outside of that, pretty much, you know, they did a show in Toronto. Um, they did uh, mostly touring in the United States, but they go away on weekends, so they didn't play that much live. And uh, it Ray really enjoyed the touring experience because it was something he never got to do on a tour bus and traveling around Europe and playing his music, so it was great to help them realize that vision and be a part of that.
0: Now, when the cult goes out on tour, Ian, how do you decide what to play? Because certain things are obviously expected.
1: Yeah. Well, it's an assumption. I mean, I always say this to Billy. It's like an assumption that the audience knows the material because, you know, you the feedback you get, is a lot, lot of it's through social media now, you know. And uh, we always pay attention to what people are saying. So we take that into consideration, songs that people are going to want to hear. But then we look at how the set going to work, how the set going to be impactful in the moment like next weekend when we play we'll be playing a lot of iconic songs from you know records that were um commercially huge releases but also I think a lot of our best songs are buried in albums um that we've never even got the chance to visit you know we never even got the chance to go into so we're going to bring out one song which we've never played before um from uh, choice of weapon which was a really very special song um i don't want to disclose it because i'd rather people have the surprise of hearing it it's a really impactful song and um kind of best sums up the last probably five six years of where the band's been at and then um you know sometimes we'll play we'll go back far back as spirit walker which was the kind of the band's first you know major uh, successful song it's Certainly in the UK it was because we had a whole album out before we got to the United States. We had an album Dreamtime that came out in the UK and building it through UK and Europe, and we spent like a full year doing UK and Europe before we even got to the US for our first American tour. But we came to the US pretty early on, and then uh, you know
0: haven't left since. <laughs> now uh, with the World Cup about to wrap up, I'm I'm uh, I'm moved to ask: Do you still play soccer? I know that's been a big passion of yours.
1: Well, I was since I could walk. I mean, I, I grew up in a culture was you know, blue collar, much like, you know, North America, where you're kind of thrust in blue collar kids are thrust into sports as a, you know, um, it's, it's, it's just the way you're brought up and very competitive, you know, kids at school and always playing at, in recess. I mean, you know, England and, and Britain is a, you know, a soccer football obsessive nation and, um, <clears throat> definitely for the World Cup as a, a very unique time, very special time. Uh, I haven't played for quite a while. I sustained a really bad injury, uh, about eight years ago, which kind of changed my whole, uh, fitness regime. I used to run a lot. Then I had to flip from running to doing more, uh, controlled cardio and doing some, um, working more like sometimes, you know, going to a dojo and, doing some martial arts practice as well as, you know, regular gym. So I have to change, uh, change that. And then is an incredibly demanding sport. I mean, players are running, you know, six, eight, ten miles during the game. Um, it's a really, really demanding physical sport and, and there's a skill and the finesse to it. So it's something I really, you know, this World Cup is something I really enjoyed watching and uh, definitely was heartbroken when England lost. But they did amazing for a young team, second-youngest team in the tournament. Um, definitely broke a lot of the the, the bad juju around uh, England's World Cup performances, and I think they walk away really proud. So that was a really incredible experience. And hopefully next one in Qatar, we'll see the United States back in it. No, the I'm United pa- States has got an amaz- you know, amazing program. A lot of incredible players. The MLS has exploded. So it's great being in the United States, seeing soccer grow as a sport.
0: Now I'm told you're an Everton fan. Is that right? Yeah,
1: you did your research. <laughs>
0: well, I'm I'm a, I'm a uh, liver, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a Liverpool fan. But this is still really good. You know, us Americans, we just go That's for funny. the big
1: name. Well, you know, my brother's a Liverpool supporter, so um, yeah, he's got the most trophies in the trophy cabinet. Um, but <laughs> I just, it's yeah, but you know, the thing with soccer is it's it's it's, it's becomes. It, I mean, it's a business for that sport. is it's insane and billions of dollars spent on it and the development of, of teams and players now is incredibly competitive you know incredible investments going into teams international investments a lot of the teams in the UK Premiership and the English Premiership are owned by you know <clears throat> external not not British business folks and um, Americans own some of the you know the teams I think isn't uh, Liverpool owned by an American
0: yeah by the Fenway um, Sports Group John W. Henry
1: right so so the guy that owns the Boston Red Sox so um yeah, exactly. I think um, Manchester United owned by the Glaziers. And, right, Tampa uh, Bay Buccaneers. American. Right. So, you know, and there's definitely a correlation between, I think there's a real respect between, um, you know, players and managers and everybody, look, like Gareth Southgate, for example, uh, the manager of the UK, the English national team, was looking at um, specialized teams in, uh, in the NFL. And specialized coaching, and he applied that to the English team, where you know, looking at things like set pieces, and so it's really interesting. So, there's a lot of uh, you know, sports technology and sports uh, magic that these guys explore, so it's it's fascinating.
0: Ian, this was terrific. Thank you so much for taking the time, and I look forward to the show on the 21st. Good stuff, excellent. Thank you so much. That is Ian Asbury from the cult, and they are at Key Bank Pavilion, along with Bush and. Stone Temple Pilots, regrouped with a new singer. That's on Saturday, July 21st. I bet you never thought a soccer talk show would break out in the middle of an interview with a rock star. But that was good stuff. Thanks to Ian. You'll enjoy the cult. Go see him. I always do. I'm Mark Madden, 105.9 The X. And now the super genius, Mark Madden. It's a rare chance for you to have a brush with greatness make the most of it. Hey, Mark. Big fan, big fan. Say, here's another great name from the past. The X at 105.9. The Tour de France is going on, the bike race, nobody cares. In the haste to clean it up, they ruined it, and now nobody cares. In the haste to clean it up, they killed their own credibility, and now nobody cares. Or maybe the bike race thing has just run its course, no pun intended. Nothing is meant to last forever, or be popular forever. And the demise of events or sports are hastened by by mass media and social media and all the different entertainment options. I mean, for God's sake, video games are going to be played on network TV. It's like uh, Pacquiao, Manny Pacquiao. He's 39, and he's got a big fight on Saturday, and that's because boxing is fading and can't create new stars. So it clings to its old stars. But the Tour de France has no old stars. They all got caught doping. No quarter brought to you by CW Electrical Services. Make the switch at CWElectricalServices.com Back before mass media and social media and the internet, people think those things are friends to sports. They are not friends the sports every flaw that shows up in sports every scandal that shows up in sports mass media and social media and the internet just pick everything clean strip it to the bone so if there's a reason to convince you to not like it you get convinced to not like it I love picking on the baseball geeks I talked at the top of the show about how there was a 13 pitch at bat by Mookie Betts at the Red Sox, who's a very good hitter. And the at bat ended in a Grand Slam home run. Whoopity do! But how many at bats like that don't end in a home run? They end like in a ground ball or a strikeout. But you still hear the baseball geeks say, well, that was an educated at bat it put the pitcher deep into his pitch count and it kept his pitcher in the dugout and got him rest he might not other I mean I don't know what they say they just act like it's good and it's a big deal and it was great to watch and it just wasn't great to watch that 13 pitch at bat I know it ended in a grand slam it wasn't great to watch Except for the baseball geeks who have taken over the game to the detriment of the viewing pleasure of the game. On Sports Center this morning, I swear to God, they showed the 13 pitch at bat. They showed every pitch. At least they started to. Because I was switched over to a rerun of Married with Children. Like I said, options. It's great to have those viewing options. And when you show me a 13-pitch at-bat as a highlight, that is not among my preferred viewing options. It doesn't entertain me. Now, I know there are those out there who like to just bellow. Oh, shut up, fat ass. You're just proving you don't know anything about baseball. I know what about baseball does not doesn't entertain me. And that's a grip MLB better get. If they don't want attendance to keep dropping like it is having dropped six percent this year. What you need is fireworks and Leonard Skinner playing after the game. That's how you keep attendance up. They should they should let the worlds collide. They should let Jamison Tyon set off fireworks himself, like behind the center field fence after he pitches, after a game. And then they could trade him to Leonard Skinner for Gary Rossington. 412-333-9939 is the number to call. I'm not getting much feedback for the Ian Asperger interview. I thought it was great. If you didn't like it, F off. It's a different type of show this time of year. Although, in just 30 seconds, guess what we're going to talk about? Stiller's. Talk about Stillers. Stiller Talk next, 30 seconds away. Stillers, 105.90X.